If you have your Bibles, open up with me, please, to the book of Jude, next to the last book of the New Testament, a short epistle, a short letter that really packs a punch and addresses what we're still dealing with, and I emphasize the word still, we're still dealing with in this world today. Let's look at verse 1. We're not going to go too, too far in this book today, but just a few things that I want to share with you that really stuck with me as I was meditating and then studying these verses, and we'll go down to verse 4. Actually, let's include verse 5. Jude opens his epistle by saying, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. So often the apostles will open up with a salutation or a blessing similar to that one there. Be multiplied, mercy be multiplied, peace be multiplied, love be multiplied. Verse 3 says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And we can stop there today because I want to just zero in on this one word found in verse 4, unawares. And I've likewise titled this sermon, Unaware. Now, I know that many of you, or at least I assume that many of you are familiar with the story of the Trojan horse. It's a mythical story, but it has significance. The story goes this way, that the Greeks were trying to conquer the city of Troy for 10 full years and just were never quite successful. They never conquered it. And so they come up with this idea of building this very, very large wooden horse as a gift to the Trojans. And then they get out into their ships and sail away, giving the impression that they're all done fighting over this city, all finished. And as you know the story, the Trojans accept this gift, see the Greeks sailing away. Finally, there'll be peace. And then in the stealth of night, all of these soldiers hid inside the horse come out and they conquered the city. It's a pretty good example of what could happen in warfare. But I also know that there are quite a few of you, or there's at least a few of you, who are experts in computers that sit here, and some of you as well will be familiar with the idea and the reality of a Trojan horse virus that comes in your computer. Some years back when Sister Jill was here with us, she's gone to be home with the Lord now, She came into my office and she could not get her computer to work. Everything was locked up, couldn't get the computer to respond. She tried solutions on her own before she consulted me. When I went in, there was this message frozen on the screen, everything's frozen, saying, you have a virus, click on this immediately. Now, for myself, having used Norton's for so, so long, I knew right away that that's not how they behave. They don't do that. Well, she didn't know. And she thought that somewhere in the use of the computer, obviously on the internet, she had come across a virus, and now this was Norton telling her that she had contracted the virus, hit this, you know, and Norton's would go to work. Well, it wasn't Norton's. It was a Trojan horse. So the virus that came from this figure worked its way so deep into the computer that no matter what we did, we could not get rid of that virus. We sent it over to the so-called geeks, Nothing they did got rid of that virus, so eventually we had to get rid of the whole computer, buy a new one, and start again. Now again, some of you are very familiar with what I'm talking about. Even if you're not a computer expert, you know that there's viruses out there. But a virus doesn't come along just like a false teacher and say, I'm a virus, click on me, and I'm going to destroy your computer. In fact, let me just give you the technical definition. It's very easy to understand. When we look at the definition officially, A Trojan horse in computing is any malware, now listen, 
any malware that misleads users of its true intent, misleading users of its true intent, by disguising itself as a standard program. So you think, at least in some cases, as in Jill's case, she thought it was the program that we use and that it was promising to erase a virus that she had accidentally contracted on the computer, but it was all deception and ruined the computer and all the work that she had saved on there, that was gone as well. Trojan horse. Well, in history, it may be myth. In computing, it's not, but neither is it in spiritual life. Neither is it in the church that we are presented with Trojan horses that promise us some type of either a victory or some type of blessing, that would be the best way to phrase it, that comes along. And concerning the author of these things, which would be Satan, we see him sailing away because he's just given up. No more temptations. Uh, no more like the song that we sang, even have to think about holy. You're just going to live holy. It just happens kind of naturally. No more decisions to make. No more effort. And these type of Trojan horses we know as demonic powers, of which the Bible talks about that in the last days, some would give heed to seducing spirits. And let me keep using the illustration and the word Trojan horses so you can get this picture in your mind. You're clicking on something on the Christian television or on the Christian radio or in some church somewhere that is promising you something. Now behind it is Satan that is promising you something, there has no intention of delivering at all. No intention. And worse, it's coming to you in a form that is either pretending to be Jesus or pretending to be scriptural, especially with those who are very clever at the manipulation of words and the misuse of logic so that people click on, if you will, things that ultimately will do them damage. But the key word here, and I'll share this when we get to it, is that you're unaware of it. That's the real danger. That's the real danger. You don't know, like my secretary didn't know that when she was clicking on what appeared to be the software that we use, that it wasn't the software that we use. It was the virus itself. And it promised great things, good things, but its intention was not good things at all. And that word unaware is something that I want to accent today. That's why I named the sermon unaware. If we really knew, and by the way, when it comes to the spiritual life, we will know if we just study this book and listen to it being preached unmolested or unadulterated by so-called teachers, then it will protect us because we will be able to recognize that this is a Trojan horse in our life, something that's being presented to us in the name of the Bible, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Holy Spirit, and the intention is that this is going to bless your life and so on. But then all of a sudden, things are just going horribly wrong. And you're wondering just what happened because it's all called deception. Deception, we know, is really part of the art of warfare or just combat. It could be combat in a boxing ring. Deceive your opponent. Same with games that we play. Chess. Put a poison pawn out there. You expect the opponent to go after it. Or the queen, most powerful figure on the chessboard. And you put it out there purposely because after that, they don't realize they're going to be trapped and then mated. It's a part of life. Deception. Used maybe, I would say, in innocent terms, like playing a game. You want your opponent to be deceived and caught. But in spiritual things, you don't want to be deceived. So Satan has many, many types of Trojan horses that come your way and they promise you either liberty again or victory or this is a blessing and all of that. And it's all a lie. The intent is not to bless you, it's to take from you. And eventually, if successful, to take your very life. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. But the Trojan horses of Satan's realm have every intention to do just the opposite. Let me give you something that comes to my mind as an example. If you are married and you had a traditional, typical Christian ceremony... Vows are exchanged between husband and wife. They vow to stay together through sickness. I'm just paraphrasing for you. Through sickness, whether they get richer or they get poorer, or no matter what happens, we will stay together. We will take a vow before God to stay together no matter what. 
Now, I'm telling you very sincerely that in my experience, it's difficult to see, it's difficult to watch. People who, in my own services, who were taught this before the wedding ceremony, only a couple of years down the line, are breaking up. You see, because I think that divorce, in some instances, is always promising us something better than what we have. There was a preacher I knew, he's passed away now. I just want to share this about the Pentecostal churches. They're more open to this type of thing. You know, God told me and the voices and all of that. And um, one day he heard a voice who he thought was the Lord say to him that the woman that you're married to is not the one I selected for you. And I think it was his secretary that this voice told him this was the one. So he left his wife. He committed adultery first. They wound up divorced He wound up with this other woman. I'm not even sure he ever married her. And it was one big, huge mess. He was humble and bright enough to realize, after we talked about it, he somehow got restored to his wife again, that he was deceived. At least he knew that. But he was deceived. The damage was done. You see, because the idea is that after living with your husband or your wife for a while, this is one example of a Trojan horse, you realize that this is not the person for me. I don't know how many years that takes, But it comes along, and then over here is, that's the one for me. I've heard this. I've had this said to me. Well, I'm with so-and-so. This is a woman I'm thinking of. And I'm with this man. He's a Christian. Her husband wasn't a professing Christian. He carries a Bible, and he gets me. So first of all, if he's carrying a Bible and professes to be a Christian, he wouldn't be doing the things that he's doing with you. It's a Trojan horse. And for her, evidently, what was really the reason she accepted this Trojan horse was because he gets me. My husband doesn't get me. So let me set the record straight here for all of you. A, men do not get women. Stop watching the Hallmark Channel and saying, oh, he gets me. I wish my husband would get me. Ladies, we don't get you. We didn't make you, we didn't create you either. But to make the playing field equal, Women don't get men. You don't understand much about us at all. So there's where the problems begin. Because someone comes along, a Trojan horse, that person may be innocently deceived just the same way the other person is, the married person. And it's going to be better. And from my point of view, when I'm counseling people about these things, I say, in my view, it's all the same. It's in my view. Pretty soon, everything gets back to normal. Now the second person you're with doesn't get you either. And that's the way I see it. I know there's some nuances of debatable points in that, but it's a Trojan horse. Not to mention that Christians take vows in sickness and in health. I've told you the story of a friend of mine whose wife developed, well, I'll call it a mental illness. That's a very debatable term, but it's the best way we understand it. Then he got hooked up with this woman he was ministering to, her husband, but he skipped. He was a drug addict, and he was ministering to this woman. Then all of a sudden, they fell in love. He left his wife with the mental illness to pick up with this other woman over here, only to find out in the course of time that she developed a very severe mental illness. And in a very, perhaps untypical way, my point was made, it's always the same. Whatever became of him after that, I don't know, I lost track because you know, he fell into such deep sin that now he didn't even want to talk to his friends. We were pretty close. He had another friend that was very, very close with. Now he avoided them, didn't want to hear it, didn't want to be faced with it, the Bible. Here was a guy that was out in the street handing out tracks, playing his music, witnessing down in Brooklyn on the streets and all of that. But now he didn't want to see Christians. He didn't want to see preachers. He didn't want to hear it. Because the Trojan horse has a way of infiltrating your life and bringing to you what it promised was going to be good. And sometimes people are just not smart enough to humble themselves that they made a mistake or they sinned. And I don't ever really understand why this is such a big problem for people. They just say, I was wrong. I did wrong. I did the wrong thing. Have mercy on me, O God. Trojan horses that come along all the time. But what is fascinating to me in verse 4, as I was meditating on this verse, is that this, first of all, is an apostle writing this. And how, and I'll say it this way, even the apostles were not able at first to distinguish a false teacher coming through the door. Why? Well, Jesus told us they dress in sheep's clothing. They have all of the Christian language down pat, Bible verses, Bible degrees, seminary degrees, doctorates behind their name. Could be anything. But I was fascinated that this word unaware was there in verse 4. 
And I was thinking to myself that the apostles themselves could not clearly identify a false teacher, a false prophet, false brethren the apostle Paul talks about right from the get-go. A space of time has to go by. And what betrays them is that what they teach goes against this book. So in verse 4 of the book of Jude, there's only 25 verses, only one chapter, Jude says, there are certain men crept in unawares. They would be Trojan horses. There are certain men crept in unawares. And then something very fascinating is stated here. It says, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation? Now, what I want to share with you here is the fact that what underscores these words, were before and ordained, were before ordained, is a Greek word, which means to be written about beforehand. So for me, when I read this in our English Bible, it doesn't quite, for me, it doesn't quite carry the connotation of what is underneath the surface in the Greek text, that what Jude is saying is that these men were written about in the past. We knew they were coming. Can't recognize them when they walk in the front door, perhaps, but give them a little bit of time and a little bit of space, and they begin to show what we'll say is their true colors. The soldiers come out of the wooden horse. They're not there to bless you, to help you. They're there to either deceive further or do the damage they intend to do. The Trojan horse was not given as it was supposed, as a gift. It was given as an act of war in the story, and then the city of Troy fell after 10 years. Nothing else worked. And so we have this. Again, we have various ways that we can think of Trojan horses, including our own thoughts that come in, satanic thoughts that come in, and deceive us. Do it this way, it'll be better. Let me say it this way. You don't have to do everything Jesus said. Skip that part here and do it this way or do it your way. My experience has been this. Every time I have either forgotten the principle of God, didn't quite really know it, or whatever it may be, it never turned out well didn't always mean complete disaster, just didn't turn out well. The peace began to slip away. The love, even for the Lord, starts to slip away. And we are all prone to this. So don't think that there's any exceptions to this. There's no one in this room, starting with the pastor, that is an exception to what I'm saying. Jude says that these men, number one, they crept in unaware. We didn't see them. They were in stealth, in secret. They came in in secret. But number two, as I just mentioned, He states there that they were written about ahead of time. This Greek word, prographo, means to write so plainly that anybody could see it. That's what it means. Doesn't mean people with just the gift of discernment can see it. Special people in the church, spirit speaks to all the time. The Greek word means written in such a way that anybody can read it. Now you look in the book of Deuteronomy and God talks about false teachers coming along that he would permit to test the faith, the true faith, of, in that case, Israel, in our case, of being a Christian. And I'll say it now, though I say it frequently, in order to protect yourself against Trojan horses, spiritual, doctrinal Trojan horses, you must read this book. You must know what this book says. And so they were deceiving in the early church. And I want you to notice that this book is written close to 2,000 years ago. So we are not experiencing anything that's new From the beginning of the church, there were deceivers, false teachers, and these Trojan horses from the beginning. And I think that perhaps it has accelerated somewhat in our time, but we are dealing with the same things that the early church dealt with. Here we see it in Jude. It's in many epistles. Most of the epistles were written, whether by Paul or Peter or James or whoever, because there were problems in the church. And to keep everybody on that road that Jesus talked about, it's straight, it's narrow, but it's straight. The New Testament had to be written so that we would not accept the Trojan horse and not certainly have all these demonic powers and seducing spirits come into our life and deceive us with the words of blessing. And so we look at the words of Jesus. Let me just read a few. Matthew 24, 11, preceding, I'll say immediately preceding his coming. Many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Matthew 24, 11. Mark 13, 5. Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. Be careful. Take caution lest any man deceive you. 1 John 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. 
And the truth is not in us. I know that none of you sitting here would say that, but how many people do we meet when you present the gospel to them will say, hey, I'm a good person. Well, that's the same as 1 John 1, 8. But I want you to listen carefully to this one here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. Listen carefully. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he, Jesus, is righteous. Now, I'm not going to go too far with this today, but I am going to say I cannot either scripturally or intellectually understand how we have legitimate preachers. I mean, their reputation is that they're not false teachers. Teaching grace in such a way that it doesn't really matter what you do. Now, no teacher says that. But if you keep drawing, taking their teachings to its logical end, that would have to be what you come up with. In any case, and we look at the moon, the moon does not shine. Well, not the way we ordinarily think of shining. It reflects. When God gives grace to you to be saved, we reflect the glory of God. Now, we also possess it, but we reflect Christ. He says, don't let anybody deceive you. It's not those that talk about righteousness or use grace as some type of, I'll say, amorphous type of doctrine that seems to cover like, doesn't matter how you live. Again, nobody really says that. But if we were to take this into a debate, that definition of grace that's given out by some to its logical conclusion would mean in the end it really don't matter what you do because you're going to be forgiven. When we know from reading the scriptures, forgiveness is dependent on repentance. Lord, I turn from this thing. Lord, I decide, as we sang before, I choose to be holy. Now, yeah, God commands it, but I like to phrase it this way. It's a cooperative fellowship we have with God because God has given us the ability to refuse his grace. Now, this goes against some of the great scholars of the age. I say great because they had great reputations, but that doesn't necessarily mean that what they taught was accurate. We see it in scripture. That's why I get confused when I'm reading the Bible against what I just read out of a theology book. In the book of Acts, Peter was saying, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. So I wonder, what am I missing? Then I sit and think long enough, and I said, I don't think I'm missing anything. In any case, we look at these things here, and that one verse, 1 John 3, 7, little children, let no man deceive you. And we read Romans 6 and Romans 8, and we see that when God gives grace to be saved, or what we just say loosely is God gives grace to be a Christian, a disciple, we are reflecting the grace of God. We reflect what's in this book. So we sang, and I'll bring it up again, I choose to be holy. And I've asked you many, many times, because this is how I think, do I really mean that? I mean, I'm talking about myself. Do I really mean that? And I'm finding, or have found for many years, that I've got to make this choice not only daily, but throughout the day. I've got to keep choosing again and again and again not to do that, not to take part in that conversation or whatever. All the time choosing, which is a form of repentance. I choose this. You, God, have saved me by your grace. I'm not talking about we work and earn anything. God gives it freely. But God gives me the ability to choose. The end of the book of Joshua, before he is to die, he says, now choose this day who you're going to serve. The God of the nations of our fathers on this side of the river or the one true God on the other side of the river. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a choice. And we make that choice. And again, that choice is not made once for all when you receive Christ months or years ago. It's made every single day. We have a choice because Satan has not changed as much as God has not changed. And he does not go away. He doesn't sail away like the Greeks did. Well, no, let me say that better. He sails away only to circle back and come in another way. You maybe know the story of Iwo Jima. They came on both sides of the island. So the Japanese weren't sure which side was going to have the heavy artillery, most of the ships, but they attacked from both sides. So now they had to decide which front do we fight on. That's what Satan does. You see the ships sailing away. You say, finally, for the rest of my life, I'll never be tempted again. There'll be no more deceptions. I'm going to live easy. Everything's a blessing. And all of a sudden, before you know it, the ships are all coming back this way and this side. Or from behind. Or over this way. That's the art of warfare. It's the art of deception. It's to make your opponent think that you're far away when you're very close. Or that you're very close when you're far away. And so on. 
is to make your enemy think you're strong when you're actually weak, or to make your enemy think you're weak when you're actually very strong. And that's exactly what Satan does. To make you think he's left. He's left the church. Satan has left the building. I believe he attends church more than the average Christian. And so we have all these warnings in scripture again and again. Just give you a couple as an example. And we see that these men were written about before time. Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares. We've been through this. And not to pull up the tares in the parable that he taught. Let them grow together. In the sovereignty and providence of God, he has decided to let false teachers remain within the confines of what we know as the church. And again, if you read Deuteronomy about the false prophets, he ordains them as a test to see if we will believe him or not. Believe him where? Right here, in this book right here. It's called the Bible. And so if you look at verse 4 with me, One of the premier deceptions of this time, and we have much more today, was what the Bible calls lasciviousness. Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Lasciviousness means an excess or wanton. An excess. So I think when it comes to the word lust, we most often associate it with sexual lust. But I want you to know there's many, many things that you could lust after. It's beyond the norm, beyond what you should have that are actually, well, let's go with the sex drive. So that's given by God. It's normal. But when it's taken to excess, it's lasciviousness. But you can have that with, well, with money. We need money. And we need money to survive and exchange and so forth to buy things. But the teacher comes up, some teacher comes up. And talks about, well, when I was first born again, they were all talking about God wants you to be a millionaire. Which I had no, then or now, I had no desire to be a millionaire. I still don't. Well, in the progress of time, now it's billionaire. So God evidently has had a change of mind about how much money you should have. And then the preacher will talk about all that he has or she has. There's a lot of women out there too. And yet when we read in 2 Timothy, it says that they have erred from the faith. The very thing Jews talking about. We'll see it in a minute. They have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. For they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. They've erred from the faith. So lasciviousness can be various things, but it's not something that's abnormal and when kept in its place. But look it. You are well-informed people. And you have preachers out there telling you things. I register this complaint often. Bible teachers, Lord raised us up men who teach the Bible, all of it, just as it's written, and not molest it, and not adulterate it. But you have these men and these women that come along and they give you this speech. It's part motivational, it's part covetousness, which the Bible calls idolatry. And they had crept into the church from the very beginning. So we read in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. We're dealing with the exact same sins and temptations as all people have from the very beginning. Although I have to just say something personal here. Having been here many, many years now in this town and to have watched people who were once very fervent in their faith, just like a clock, just ticking off one tick at a time, buying into Trojan horses that promises them a blessing. To get them out of the hot water, listen to me carefully on this one, to get them out of the hot water, God put them in. Does not God test his people? Is that not in the book? It is. And when God is testing us, I'm not talking about Satan now. When God is testing us, we protest. We say, I don't want to be tested. I want to be blessed. And so this teacher over here, he offers you a Trojan horse. You don't have to go through all that discomfort that you're in. Just open up this guy right here and you'll be blessed. Then you find out. It's not what it seems. I really don't know what it's like to be a millionaire or a billionaire. But I've had this thought. I've had this philosophical thought in my head that it's not what it's cracked up to be. I mean, Marlon Brando owned the Tahitian island. That appeals to me, I'm telling you. That appeals to me. But what doesn't appeal to me is swimming with sharks, uh, people who decide that we're not from Tahiti and to attack us or whatever. It's always promising something that's just not there, whether it's a new spouse or whatever it may be. It's a Trojan horse. It was a danger, but they were unaware of it. And what you don't want to do in your walk with Christ to meet him in the end is to be unaware that you've been off track for 20 years, 10 years, a year, three. 
because you were unaware of it. How many times have people been diagnosed with a fatal disease that they were unaware of? I told you in 2008 when I was diagnosed with a serious heart condition, I had no symptoms at all, none, zero, not one, none. No chest pains, no pain in my jaw, worked out every day, did everything I've always done. I had no warning at all, except that God was merciful and a cardiologist just happened to discover it on a routine test. I was walking around with a fatal disease, unaware. And this is hard to really give you the how-tos beyond read the scriptures. And by the way, I believe one of the Trojan horses that the enemy Satan is throwing at us is this busyness I referred to earlier. We're rushing here, rushing there, rushing here, rushing there. Then we're going to the doctors to get tranquilizers to slow us down. I can't sleep at night, so we need something to get us to sleep. Wake up groggy from that medication, so we need something to wake us up. And it is, in my uh, understanding, and I've studied the subject for a long time, if we would just slow down. That means you're going to have to start saying no to certain events, certain things. No, I can't be there. Now, sometimes they may be important. I mean, both to you and to the other person. Sometimes you're going to be criticized. Some of you know, I take a nap in the afternoon. I've been doing this since high school. Now, am I concerned with someone says, I already lays down every day. It don't even enter my mind if someone doesn't like it. I don't care. I work hard enough. And the only person that needs to know that I work hard enough is God. And not that I don't want you to know it, that I'm not a schlep or a bloodsucker. I work hard enough. And I'll tell people, oh, I'm going, it's getting close to nap time. You take a nap? I've been doing this since high school. Was that, 50 years? Yeah, I do. But I, I don't care at all if someone has an objection to it. I really don't. Why should I? It's none of their business. So what I'm trying to say is that some things that you do for your health physically, for your health mentally, for your health spiritually, someone may have an objection to that. Imagine that. Now, Satan will always be setting his sails, looking like he's going away. We'll say to one problem, we beat you, only to have another one come right at us. And that's the truth, folks. That's the truth. He's not going to give up on us until we finally go home. So, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. So, in verse 4, we see that these men who came in, that even the apostles couldn't detect them at the first they were written of, and they are written of, and I gave you just a few scriptures, there's a lot of them in the Bible, Old and New Testament, that false teachers would come along, and you're not going to recognize them at first. Number one, they have a Bible. Number two, if they're behind a pulpit, they may not be dressed with shirt and tie like I am and do, but they're kempt. They're usually articulate. You know, I mean, how many people listen to someone who's not making sense when they talk, that marbles in their mouths? They're usually articulate, they're usually intelligent and some themselves are actually deceived. So they're telling you what they actually believe, but what they believe is wrong. How do you know? The Bible says, and the Bible says, oh, you say, but you see, Pastor, I'm not gifted like you, and I'm not called like you. And I had a group of people in my church in the Bronx. Most of them were from the Caribbean islands, Barbados, Jamaica, other places. Great people. One of the brothers there at the time, he was in his 70s. Now, of course, he's passed on. And I remember just, you know, hitting it hard about studying and, you know, the need for real deep study in the Bible. And I went to visit him in the hospital. He had some malady or other. I was sharing with him, and he just kept shaking his head. And he said, Pastor. And he grabbed my hand when he did that, and he, took, and he turned his head the other way. This man, I don't think he had sixth, seventh, eighth grade education. But I'm telling you that if I was any place in the Bible, that corner, it was a little corner over there where they sat, they'd all be mounting the scriptures with me with no Bible open. And as a young man, that was a great encouragement. They had heard the word so many times and read it so many times, and this is why I'm bringing this point up. Sixth or seventh grade education, he was a janitor in a school. But when it came to this book, he knew it. I had another elder, well, elder as far as they were older, not elders in spiritual things. And if I was doing the Sunday school, he'd always be raising his head. He always had a question, usually an objection. I would have to outthink him. But they kept me sharp. So what I'm trying to convey to you is this, that you don't have to be a scholar. The Bible was written in Greek in the dialect of Koine for the common person. So you could read it. Most of you will never attain to the level of being true scholars, biblical scholars. I'm pretty sure I won't either. But I know what the book says. You want to be like this group of people that I had who could mouth the scriptures as I was reading them. 
I remember quoting a scripture and giving a reference with it. And one of the, uh, I'm talking about elders, they were older people, shaking his head. I had the wrong reference. Can't tell the pastor that he's wrong. Well, he was right. I had the wrong reference. That's how well they knew this Bible. And that's how you know whether something coming at you is a Trojan horse. I remember talking to a man who in one breath named two preachers that he admired. And they could not be any further apart doctrinally than east is from west and north is from south. And I'm wondering to myself, what kind of brain do you have that you can't discern that these two people are in opposite corners doctrinally? But he accepted it. Trojan horses. Whatever's on your plate, you eat. Well, that's okay if you trust the one that's serving you. But if it's an enemy, no, I don't think so. So we have here the fact that these men slipped in unaware. And they're still with us today. You need to read the Bible for yourself. You need to read. I always tell you a minimum of three chapters get you through the whole book. And please do yourself a favor. And don't come to me and say, I wish I had the time. Because that conversation is not going to go good for you. We make time for anything we want. And we will make time for anything we really want. So if you slipped up a little bit, fine. Just begin again today and read the Bible. Are we clear? Amen. Crystal clear. And they were written about so that we could know them. They are ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Notice this here. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. By the doctrines, they were denying the Lord, the one true God, who we're all going to see one way or the other. So now I want to bring you to verse number three, which precedes this and exhorts you as this verse says. Let's read it. Verse number three, beloved, when I gave all diligence, this word here implies there was a type of necessity to get this done right away. You got to write to these people. It's a general epistle anyway. When I gave all diligence to write unto you, and I want you to notice these words, the common salvation, that which is truth to every single born-again, truly born-again believer, no matter where they are, no matter what label they go under, there is a common salvation to every single person who's truly born-again or saved. I give all diligence to write to you about the common faith, the common salvation, as it was needful for me to write unto you, and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And he's saying you've got to fight for the common salvation, the doctrines of the common salvation. And this is where at this point in the message it becomes challenging. Pastor, isn't it your job to contend and our job to attend services? No. If you notice here, who is Jude writing to? He's not writing to the other apostles. He's writing to them that are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Is that you or is that not you? Oh, that's you. So when he says, beloved, when I wrote to you, gave all diligence to write about the common salvation, it was needful for me to write to you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. I remember reading the story of some soldier. She happened to be a woman, a female soldier. And I believe it was Afghanistan. Got into a firefight. There was some combat. There was some, you know, bad things that happened in combat. And she somehow had a meltdown and made a declaration that the newspapers picked up and said, this is not what I signed on for. Now think about this. This is a soldier. Forget the male, female. This is a soldier who in combat is maybe remembering that she was supposed to get the GI Bill. Or I've heard a story of recruiters promising new recruits a condominium. This is not what I signed on for. You have a helmet, you have a gun. Do you understand that you're fighting the enemy? It is what you signed on for. Well, you break down in combat. Okay, we can understand that. But the whole premise is wrong. This is what you signed on for. But none of us knew, I certainly didn't know, and I bet the majority of you didn't know that when you signed on to be a Christian, you were going to be in a fight. And some of you don't like to fight. And I can understand that. But now you're going to learn that you have to fight for the common salvation. Let me give you what someone has written down as 14 essential doctrines, realizing there's some doctrines, even that we teach, that are not essential to you going to heaven or being born again and saved. And churches differ, and that's okay. But there are certain things you'll find that are essential to salvation and common in nearly every denomination that you examine. So let's just go through them quickly. Number one, there's only one God, God's unity. 
Number two, God is a triune being. These are all essentials. Number three, the grace of God saves us. We don't save ourselves. Four is the necessity of faith. We must believe human depravity, the fact that we couldn't save ourselves no matter what we did. Jesus is sinless. Jesus' death on the cross made an atonement for our sins. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for us. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus is fully God as well as fully human. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus will come again. He ascended into heaven. And then there's this one here, which I consider to be the most important one, is the inspiration of Scripture. Man didn't write, I mean, man used a pen, but God gave him the words. We're not reading a philosophy book here. And you say, I think I'm going to step off at this point because this isn't what I signed on for. In my view, I think God is very wise. He doesn't tell us right up front, except when we read Jesus about carry your cross and deny yourself and love me above everybody else. But he doesn't quite, when you're newly born again, he doesn't give you the whole picture for which we ought to be grateful. So we would have fainted at the very beginning if we knew what we were going to face simply because we made a commitment to Christ through the book. And I want to say something here. I wanted to say it earlier, and I didn't. Someone asked me just recently, do I live in the gifts of the Spirit? Yes, I do. And uh, healing, and yes, I do, and so on. But I'm so tired in Pentecostal charismatic circles of God told me. God told you what? In that video that you sent me, brother, here's a guy arguing that he needs a new Learjet, $54 million. That could probably buy this whole city. And he didn't care what people thought as he did this very thing that I'm doing now because God told me. You don't know if to laugh, to cry, to turn off the station, what to do. God told him what? The old Learjet isn't good? You need a $54 million Learjet? And it was the same, except they didn't have Learjets, I don't know if you know that, in the first century. But it was the same thing. Money and gain is godliness. That's 2 Timothy. Some think that gain is godliness. The more money you have, the more God is blessing you. That's what the apostle Paul had to deal with, as well as the other apostles. But here, just giving you just an inkling of the essentials of Christianity. That's the common salvation. It's common to anyone who's going to actually see Jesus. They must be saved by God's grace alone. And trust in it, that's faith, and I just gave them to you. But here's the part where you come in. God says to you, you must earnestly contend for this faith. Now, I know some of you have said, well, you know, when these things are, I don't get involved. You better start getting involved. You better start getting involved because that book says to get involved. That means you make a correction. When I hear things and I'm talking to people, I don't come off as a, I try not to come off being rude or arrogant. I say, well, not necessarily. You can do it in a polite form, in other words. You know what I think? Well, yeah, but you know what the book says, the Bible says? That's contending. I don't get into contention. People want to shout and scream. I'm not interested. But if you want to talk about what the book says, this is what the book says. And that's given to every single person here, every single one of you. He says, I'm writing to you that are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, and called that you should earnestly contend for the common salvation, for the essentials of Christian doctrine. Like it or not, you are in a fight. And you need to go home today and consider how many times have you turned away from someone because you don't want to argue. I don't want to argue. Do you think every day I get up in the morning I want to argue with people? I don't. I'm actually by nature quiet and reflective. But if you're going to engage me and say, you know, the Bible says, oh, no, no, it does not say that. And that's given to all of us, not just to me. Now, this last part of the message is of help to you in any part of life. You say you don't want to argue with people, and I agree with that if you mean by arguing, screaming and yelling and getting all upset. But if you mean by that, you're just going to back off and let them go away thinking the Bible says something it doesn't. That, my friend, is wrong. Simply wrong. We all deal with fear. Do not let anyone tell you they have no fear. It's not true. Everybody has it. The difference being those that overcome it and those that don't. And be sure of this, if you don't overcome your fears, they will overcome you. Instead of being led by the Holy Spirit, you'll be led by your feelings and your emotions and the things that you're afraid of. You and I cannot be afraid of this generation or any generation to speak the truth in love. And just like my taking a nap every afternoon, we cannot be concerned about who likes it and who doesn't like it. It's the truth. 
On my desk, I have a book that was bought by my sister here, the autobiography of Floyd Patterson. It was a great, great, great gift. But I remember reading that book as a kid, not that long after it was published. You see, Floyd Patterson dealt with a lot of fears, really bordered on almost being neurotic, not psychotic, neurotic. He was afraid a lot. He questioned when he lost, he questioned when he won. But that was just him. He was a sensitive man who just happened to be a fighter. And we don't ordinarily put those two together, artists and people in combat, combat in the ring. But I remember reading in his autobiography how he was so frightened, I don't remember what fight it was, so scared that it caused him to rush out of his corner, just land one, maybe two punches on his opponent and knocked him straight out. And what caused that was not bravery, it was fear. Listen to his trainer, Customato, what he said about training fighters. Customato was his trainer. You know, he was the trainer for Michael Tyson, one of the greatest boxing trainers of all time. D'Amato said, the first thing I do with a young fighter is explain fear. Most people don't know much about fear. They think it's a sign of being yellow, but fear is normal. It's like fire. If you let it get out of control, it will destroy you and everything around you. If you can learn how to control it, you can make it work for you. Fear is just nature's way of preparing you to fight. Now, that was his take on it. Now, I think it's pretty good. Fear. We all deal with it. Sometimes people will say, well, if I say that, what would they think of Jesus? You're not concerned about Jesus. You're concerned about yourself. You're going to look like a fool. You're going to act like a fool. People are going to call you a fool. But just remember this. Your pastor has the courage to take a nap. I overcome every fear that I've ever had, and I lay down and say to myself, I don't care what anybody does. I'm going into a sleep. And people have asked me, how long do you sleep for? <laughs> so somebody out there is writing my biography, and I'll tell them, but I'm not telling you. I don't care what they think. I'm laying down. And we have got to get to the point where we're not talking about, I just don't want them to think ill of Jesus. Let's get down to the point. We're really cared about ourselves. Maybe it's just inconvenient because you're out enjoying this beautiful spring day. But if you're not, you're not doing your duty before God. It's as simple as that. And many of you here have been around this Bible a long time. You're not doing your duty. Now, I'm not saying go look for people to contend with. And I'm not talking about being contentious. I'm simply stating that when we hear something or we confront something or we see something, or we hear something, or even if a brother or sister said, yeah, have you listened to so-and-so, so-and-so? Now, in my business, I will say, really, do you know what this guy believes? And most times they don't. It's innocent. So I explained to him, see, do you really ever see how he lives? I live in a house, a nice house. They live in compounds. They live better than most kings have ever lived in history. Anyway, I'm talking about fear and overcoming fear. I think some of you here are acquainted with the movie Patton, where George C. Scott portrays General Patton. There is no doubt Patton had a way of putting things across with what he described as eloquent profanity. But on June the 5th, 1944, he gave the speech that is the opening part for the movie. So actually the speech was later on in his career in World War II. I want you to listen to just a part of the actual speech, censored. Patton in that speech on June the 5th, 1944, right before Normandy, before they landed in northern France, the Allies, he said this, battle is the most significant competition in which a man can indulge. It brings out all that is best and it removes all that is base. You're not all going to die. Only 2% of you right here today will be killed in a major battle. And he said this, every man is scared in his first action. If he's not, he's a liar, a certain type of liar. But the real hero is the man who fights even though he's scared. Some men will get over their fright in a minute under fire. Some take an hour and for some it takes days. But the real man never lets his fear of death overpower his honor, his sense of duty to his country, and his innate manhood. What I want to say to you here at the end of this message is to give you an exhortation that you can apply to anything. But that's what the context is saying here. I wrote to you, it was necessary for me to give all diligence to write this out. I had to write this out with some speed expedited. And I wrote of the common salvation and to exhort you, get in the ring, lace up the gloves and contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. How do we know what it is? It's all right here, right there. It's all written out. 
Patton, others, many others, understand what I understand. Everybody has fear. I have it. Everybody has it. I just refuse to let it dominate my life. And you must make that decision as well, but especially as it concerns the faith. You have relatives. You have people that are in your family that are speaking wrong doctrine. And you have an obligation to contend for the faith without being contentious. Now, that's a can of worms. I understand that. But I didn't write this book. That common salvation is God's word. We must stick to it. Otherwise, we have accepted a Trojan horse that may conquer our spirit. And we don't want that. We stick with the book. Contend for the faith. Recognize that there are those in the church who snuck in secretly and turned the grace of God into a, we're no longer under the law. Don't let man put you in bondage. We don't want any of this legalism. Well, I know this preacher isn't talking about legalism. I'm just talking about what's right and what's wrong. And that grace reflects the word of God. Jesus is the word of God and brings it to the earth. I want you to consider all that you've heard today, of course. But I want you, so we can get down to a practical application. I want you to ask yourself, what's holding me back either from sharing your faith or you know, admitting that you, know, you, you read and pray and whatever? You actually live by the book. Is it really you know, some excuse that you're using or is it just basically fear? You're afraid of what people are going to say, what they're going to think. Why, they may think you're a religious fanatic. Let it be. Some of you have an idea of what people say about me. And I have somewhat of an idea of what people think about me. But I'll still be taking a nap and I don't care. Because I'm not going to accept some Trojan horse and be afraid of the face of man whose breath is in his nostrils. But the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Make him your fear, as he says in Isaiah. Make him your dread. Father, we come before you today in Jesus' mighty name. And there is truly nothing new under the sun. As soon as you started your church, errors came right in. Con artists, false teachers, prophets, they came in. Men who turned grace into lasciviousness, kind of do what you want. But in the end, God forgives you anyway. Well, we know that, but we're commanded to live righteously. Help us, God, today to not be afraid of the face of man, especially in the hour of history in which we live. Help us, God, to practice your word in our lives, as we read in 1 John 3, 7. Not to be deceived. He that is doing what is righteous is righteous. And again, God, so we don't accept a Trojan horse that may come in the form of some well-spoken, articulate, educated, and popular teacher who says otherwise. Help us today, Father, in Jesus' name, to do what is right. Help us, God, to be able to detect by the lamp of your word those things that we would have otherwise been unaware of. Today, God, every day, help us to be aware, to be alert, that we can love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, where we see our signs in this generation, and we bless you. You're in a fight, my friends. Just don't let fear overcome you, or anything else. We're in a fight. Make it count. Help us today, Lord Father God, to be able to bless your name by loving you with all that we have, and then also by loving one another. And I said earlier, and I say it again, even so, return, come Lord Jesus. We bless you today, O Father God, in Jesus' name. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. amen.